Excellent. A great ministry to be part of indeed. And so, like Russell said, if, if you've never been a part of it, that doesn't exclude you. Uh, you can jump in at any time and be a part of that wonderful ministry and uh, really invest in the lives of children. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We are going to be finishing that chapter with a few left in our series called Counterculture. We've been looking through the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians. We're going to continue in that way today. Um, and uh, we have a lot to cover in a short amount of time. So I'm going to dive in, reminding us that we'll spend time together in God's Word. And then we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together uh, following that. And so that will be part of our worship this morning as well. Um, but I want to uh, read this uh, text from 7 to 18. But before we do, we'll recite this as an affirmation. When we come to God's word, this is something we say as a community, and I always want to remind us of why we say it as we believe God's word, especially in our day, as the truth that we live under God's authority and what the Spirit would do through this time together. Let's say it. Our pursuit is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be a biblically functioning community. We will not shy away from the word of God. We will embrace it as truth, no matter how painful it is to our souls or how countercultural it is to our souls. We will follow the king into eternity. I'm going to read from verse 7 through 18. The context here is Paul is continuing to defend his ministry and, uh, to the Corinthian church and to uh, do that by way of what we'll study more next week. There are false teachers that are always opposing the church. And so he says this, Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is, in, that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach to you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. So that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. But the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved but the one whom the Lord commends. I invite you to pray, and uh, if that's new to you, just a brief prayer that God would speak to your heart during this time, and I'll pray for us collectively. Let's pray. Father, we want to hear your voice this morning, and we want your word to ring out in our souls that we would live under your authority and your sovereign rule and reign. And Father, I pray that our hearts would be spoken to this morning, my heart, our hearts collectively, for the glory of Christ. And it is in his name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. 
ever since the Garden of Eden, so Genesis, right at the beginning of time, Satan has assaulted God's truth with lies. That has been his operative modem all along. He will assault the truth of God with lies. And for thousands of years, he's been successful in dividing and destroying people and relationships and families and marriages and church bodies. And First Peter reminds us when we read that text, and I'll read it at the end of our time together today, that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There is spiritual attack in our world. And the leaders of God's people then must be keenly aware of this and seek to protect and guard the flock, those entrusted to their care. And to remind us of what circles us and and remind us of what is out to destroy us, this enemy that lurks around and give, teachers then give sound doctrine by way of teaching and also modeling through godly living. Last week we were reminded of the reality that our battle is not against flesh and blood. We are in a spiritual battle, and Satan is out to divide, destroy, uh, part company in the church and have it be a mess, really. And this is a really interesting season that the church is living through right now. It is a battlefield for souls, and we need to wake up to that. The church must be alert in this time, and there is this reality of spiritual warfare of what he's trying to do in his distraction, his division and his destruction in the people of God. And so in our study of uh, First and Second Corinthians, but especially this second letter, Paul has been pouring his heart out in the last nine chapters. He has been pouring his heart out to the, the church of Corinth, like in, instilling in them confidence and hope and all of these things. And, and he's doing that to the repentant majority in the church. They had a bunch of problems. They were always uh, being challenged with the sin that was before them and being reformed. And Paul is pouring his heart in encouragement out to them in these first nine chapters, pleading for their trust and loyalty as he is an apostle and is uh, instrumental in the founding of their church. And now in the last several t- chapters, he turns his attention towards defending being a little more defensive, if you will, and protective of the false teachers that are seeking to destroy. And so the reality is, that comes along with that, is he has critics. He has people that will criticize, and, and, and uh, I am not aware, unaware, rather, as a leader, uh, that leaders have critics. Uh, there is a lot of criticism. In fact, even during the season, and I read an article recently, that pastors uh, pastoring today in this COVID season have pretty much like surveyed, if you will, that it's about five to 10 times more criticism in their leadership and ministry than it ever was before. And so I'm not unaware of that. And all leaders are under scrutiny in, in their decisions. And this is in the church and it's outside of the church too. But it was under scrutiny in a lifestyle and that's to be expected because that comes with the territory as a leader. Which is why leaders are called to be above reproach Although I have to say they, we, I am not perfect, but there are identifiers or characteristics of who is God's man. And Paul begins to unpack those, these characteristics that should speak to all of us. They're marks of godliness. And Paul is going to do that in this text. He's going to defend himself by pointing towards characteristics of himself that are in godliness and those that are not in those of others who are looking to destroy the church. And we know this, that only the Lord himself is perfect in the way he walked and led 
But there are certain aspects that you and I have to strive for and seek to attain, especially those in godly leadership. The fact is that there is no leader in any shape or form that will escape criticism. Now, criticism, we need to know on the front end, is not always negative. Criticism can be very good for, uh, for shaping us. So it's not always, we, we view it as a negative tone, but it always, um, it always isn't going to be negative. But when it comes, it ought not be misguided, misjudged, or misrepresented. No church has ever been exempt, and friends, hear this. No church has ever been exempt from the enemy's attack on the truth. That's what Satan has assaulted with his lies since the beginning. And the church of Corinth was no exception. So Satan here is just seeking to destroy the church in Corinth, and he's working through sinful men and false teachers to sway the body away from Paul's leadership. And so in the text, we see Paul's defending this, especially in his character. And our takeaway would be twofold this morning. One is how we respond to criticism. And I'll touch on that just briefly for time's sake and for it not being the main overview of the passage. And the second one is what the man of God is marked by. And so you'll see in your bulletin, if you have it, there's fill in the blanks for seven things that a man of God is marked by. And you can fill those in with some notes if if you're a note taker. But we'll see seven things through the text and we'll cover the first one um, is one of the first two takeaways. A man of God is known by his response to criticism. This is for leaders, but it's for other people too, for all of us to know how Paul is responding to criticism, how we should. The first one you see by way of four points, and I'll cover those briefly that we can learn, and this is kind of an overview of this whole section that I read. Paul did four things when he was criticized that we can learn from. And the first one is this in verse 7. He corrected their perspective. It says, look what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is, in, that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. He says, look what's before your eyes. What he is doing there is he say, look not at the external, but look at the internal. Often critics and criticism comes and it just looks at the external. It's the temporal, it's the, the very obvious things. But what Paul is driving at is you need to look at the internal of who you are and who I am. We belong to Christ. And you have to help people see clearly at times when when criticism comes, you have to correct perspective. You have to engage focus because we know when criticism usually comes that it involves a lot of emotion. And emotion, as we should know, often can distract and blur our vision. And Paul is reminding them, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Look, at what God is doing in the church. And that means something. So he corrects their perspective. The second thing he does is he clarifies his motive in verses 8 or 9. He says, Even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear frightening you in my letters. Paul wrote weighty letters. He wrote heavy truths. And what he says there is you have to understand my motive in speaking this, when you and I receive criticism, often we have to listen with the attitude of, I want to understand why this is coming at me. Maybe there would be truth there, and not just what we would say in our culture, just offense. Criticism in our culture is like no one can even say anything to us because we're so offended right away, and that's our culture. We're so easily offended. And Paul says, no, you have to understand my motive. His goal is not to tear down the church. 
That would make no sense. It was to build it up. And he wanted to edify, not terrify. And you and I must be clear with our character and on our heart when criticism comes, reminding people of the why. And so that's a, a confidence that we can take and say, when you go and you do bring something to light in someone's life, you have to do it in, with humility. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But you have to do it with true, and, true care and motive that is understood. And sometimes people doubt that, which is why Paul does this third thing. He confesses his authenticity in verses 10 through 12. For they say his letters are weighty and strong. They said Paul was just a heavy on the letter, but that he wasn't that way behind that. Let such a person understand that what we say in verse 11, when we're absent, we do when we're present. We don't dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. So the point Paul is making here is his actions and his words matched. They matched. They accused Paul of being weighty in his letters and kind of hiding behind his words and that he might not do that if he was standing in front of somebody. Can I just say that is really happening in our culture right now. You and I both know that people are really powerfully strong behind computer screens and behind smartphones and devices to say things that they might not say in front of people's face. And, and that's what Paul is saying. I write these letters, but I would do it this way in person as well. And this ought to convict us with criticism. We are quick to criticize on social media. We are quick to fire off emails to people, to just get it off of our heart and dump. And Paul is saying we need to be careful that our words and our actions as we follow Jesus match. And you have to be consistent. And if not, we repent. And so Paul confesses his authenticity by way of, here's my motive, I want to build up the church, and here's my consistency in the way my words and actions match for the heart of the church. Finally, this thing, he communicated the facts in verses 13 through 18. I'm not going to read all of that, but an overview is that he doesn't boast beyond what God has called him to. He's not comparing. He's not overextending. He's not taking credit for others' labors, as you see in the text there. Paul stuck with what was real and true. He wasn't going to get sucked into speculation. His boast was in Christ. And he wanted to be clear, and he only used the facts of ministry, humble and authentic when criticism came his way. You can be bold and resolved. That is well within our right. We can do that without offending people, but you have to remember who you are in Christ. First and foremost, a sinner and then a saint. And Paul recognized that. That's why he penned those words by the Spirit, that he was the, the chief of sinners. He understood he was not high, high above all people, that he did not unrightly un elevate himself, rather, and he remembered his place before Christ as the head of the church, which leads me into the second characteristic. A man of God is also known by his relationship to Jesus Christ. A man of God is known by his relationship to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7 again. I'll give you the overview. We'll kind of go back through the text a little more thoroughly. If anyone is, in, is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Paul knew that this was personal, and it was about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It was about what his relationship, first and foremost, before he was a leader, before he was a, a pastor, before he was an apostle, all those things. It was about what Jesus had done in his life in purchasing him 
by his blood and bringing him together with God's people for the building of the church. He recognized this. A tree is also known by his fruit. Jesus said that in Matthew 7. Paul's reminder here was that the way we live ought to be consistent with the person we follow. And he was acknowledging where his saving faith came from, who he gave it credit to. I think Christians get lost in this in our culture. We think we're like independent of Christ in some way. And Paul remembered that it was only by his nurtured relationship with Jesus in the way that he followed would he be able to do anything well. John 15 would remind us of this. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And this was about who Christ saved and redeemed and claimed and adopted and then bought together and brought together in the church. Brothers and sisters that infight, that fight amongst themselves in the church, forget that they belong to the same Father. And we forget that so easily. And Paul is saying, look, like this is the pause button, the timeout. Look at who we are. And Paul could take credit, if you will, for the church in Corinth, the fact that they were even a church that he was invested in, that he saw lives transformed. They were from the same family, and while the man of God is not perfect, we must remember that we each individually belong to Christ, and therefore to each other. And when believers elevate themselves through conflict higher than another believer, the brother for whom Christ died, as Paul writes earlier in 1 Corinthians 8, oh, the danger. And so first and foremost, when we come with attitudes of even criticism or attitudes of concern, we must remember who the church is, the people of God together. And so a man of God is marked by his relationship with Jesus Christ. Thirdly, a man of God is known by his impact on the church. A man of God is known by his impact on the church. You see this in verse 8. For even if I boast a little too much, Paul is being honest here, of our authority as an apostle, even if I sometimes do that improperly, which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying, I will not be ashamed. Paul is saying, I cannot be ashamed for doing what God has called me to do. I've had an impact. The very fact that Corinth was a church was not attributed to Paul necessarily, but through Paul's efforts in following Christ, pagans in that culture were transformed by the grace of Christ. The very fact that there was a church thriving in Corinth that proclaimed the gospel was a miracle. And Paul had impact on that. And his role then as a minister was that of Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, that he was, that, that Jesus gave the apostles, evangelists, teachers, prophets for the building up of the body of Christ. And it's what it says in Ephesians 4. Now, there are sometimes leaders who are abusive and tear down And there is sometimes the perception of that because of people's own perspective and sinfulness. And Paul wanted to remind them about his love and care for the church and combat the falsehood that he was trying to tear down through his words. That would be to no advantage. And friends, I realize often people do not realize the criticism of leaders in our culture and in our church Because we do it often. We criticize government leaders. We criticize church leaders. We criticize everything. Everything is under scrutiny. And some of it's just irrational and illogical. Especially some of the things that I've heard in in this season of COVID, like decisions we've made, I kind of laugh, like, do you think we're trying to like eliminate the church? Do you think we're trying to have less people show up? Do you think we're trying to, do you think, like even me, do you think I'm trying to like 
remove myself and, and lose a job of ministry. I mean, some of it's so rational at times, the things we come up with in our criticism. And Paul recognized that. Sometimes we need different perspective. And Paul understood well of his impact in the church. And he's speaking to these people in Corinth. The fact that you're even in the body of Christ is all attributed to God. And his heart was to build into that, not to tear it down. And they were so easily deceived by these false teachers that were pointing at Paul and saying, he's not the man to take you to the next level. He's not the man to bring you to where God wants you to be. And it was deceptive. And Paul planted and loved the church in Corinth, and it would be silly to look at his decisions in a way of harming it. Now, Paul is the same one who penned these words in 1 Corinthians 3.17 by way of warning for all of us to remember. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The reason why I bring this up is often we think of that what we take into our body, but Paul is reminding us about the people of God having the spirit. So be wise when you tear down. Be wise when you criticize. The evidence for Paul was seen in the fact that the church was even a church again in the midst of this pagan culture. They were people that used spiritual gifts and served one another. And it was only by the power of God that that happened. And we must remember that while Paul was an influential builder, he was not, was not the builder. That is the Lord Jesus himself. Remembering Matthew 16, 18, spoken by Jesus to Peter, reminding him that he would build his church, but the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. That is good news for leaders in ministry, that God is working through people to build, and we don't have, like, I don't have to worry about whether this thing is mine or not. And we don't have to worry about whether culture moves against when Jesus said the church will push right through and push back the gates of hell. So a man of God is known by his impact on the church. Fourthly, a man of God is known by his compassion for people. Verse 9 speaks about Paul in his heart and motive. I do not want to appear to frighten you with my letters. His desire was not to scare people into submission. His desire was not to make his agenda known by way of fear. It was to bring people along with care and overall, the overall good for their spiritual health. And sometimes that does come by way of hard truth when you disciple others or when you lead others. But it is not void of, of compassion. It has to be tempered with compassion. I admit that personally this has always been an area of growth for me. As a person, I am by nature a truth teller. I have no problem telling you exactly what you're doing wrong. I have no problem with that. I have no problem telling my kids, my spouse at times. I, that's by nature. And so God has had to grow my heart, especially in this area, by way of compassion. And thankfully, he has done this in his own unique way. And I've often said this. He has done this for me personally. I'm very aware that he has brought Josiah into my life personally to temper that in me. As I've watched him grow and watch the struggle, I have become far more compassionate with other people because God has broken my heart in different ways in pain to, for, the, for his good, which has given me a greater understanding and a reminder that the hard things of life, the really hard heart things, are often is what God is using for our sanctification and good. And so God, as if 
he knew, which he did from the beginning of time, this one is going to be struggling with compassion. And he brings Josiah's life into my view and says, I'm going to break his heart in ways that he'll understand this better. And I do that, or I say that for our reminder that, again, whatever God is doing in your life that's really hard and painful, it's often to reveal something very sick and sinful about you and to transform it. Instead of fighting against that, we should then welcome that. And God has been doing that in my heart as I sit with people who go through hard things. And I have far more compassion than I did 10 years ago. It brings care, care for people, people who struggle. And Paul's care was for people born out of the affection of Christ Jesus, as we're reminded in Philippians 1.8. That is what his care was. He wrote these words too, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all, effect, all affection of Christ Jesus. That was Paul's desire and he makes it known here in this letter. A compassionate man of God is one who would be like that of a shepherd who is willing to lay down his life for the flock. And Paul so desperately wants to know, want these people in Corinth to know that I would do that for you. And it's by way of compassion. And so he says, I know what I'm saying is hard and weighty at times, but it has to be tempered with a true care and compassion. Fifth, a man of God is known by his disdain for fleshly methods. A man of God is known by his disdain for fleshly methods. In verse 10, Paul realizes that his writings are powerful. Again, and he says they're weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. That's what people were saying to Paul. They said, he speaks tough in a letter, but he's really weak in presence and he doesn't really speak that well. They were criticizing Paul of that. And what Paul recognizes is that was another fleshly attempt to get him off his game. And he's dis his disdain for those fleshly methods is his disdain for those false teachers who are trying to assault God's truth with lies again. And he's wanting them to see this is not a personal battle. This is a spiritual one always. You see, they cared about these people that were looking at Paul as unpolished and weak. They cared more about their lofty opinions. They cared more about their popularity, their knowledge, and puffed up in those ways. They cared about scheming against him. They cared about themselves more than they cared about the church. And Paul wasn't going to get sucked in to that negativity. Paul wasn't going to get sucked in to the negativity that is sucking in so many of us in the church, getting sucked in like a vortex to what's happening in our culture, what's happening in politics. And there's so much negativity in the world, and some of us are just getting sucked into it. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. We ought to just disdain those methods of what Satan is trying to do to divide and distract and torment in the church and in our culture, and we're going to stay in our lane. And he rebuked the fleshly battle in people. He knew it was a scheme manipulated by Satan, and he wasn't going to get sucked into it. Now, how many of us are getting sucked into that right now and feeding our flesh with that from day to day? How often are you a part of stirring the pot, if you will, with what's going on in our culture. Be very careful about that. And for some of us, Satan has tricked us into thinking that our voice needs to be heard the way it needs to be heard in conversations that only continue to breed negativity. And that is just abounding in our culture. And a man of God just doesn't get sucked into it. In fact, he fights against it, those fleshly methods. Sixth, a man of God is known by his integrity. Look at verse 11. 
Let a, let a person understand that we say by letter what when, when absent we do when in present. I covered this, but Paul had his actions and words matching. Integrity is key in ministry and key in walking in godliness. Job 4.6 would remind us of this, that the fear of God ought be our confidence and the integrity of our ways, our hope. That integrity should be the hope by which you and I walk. Paul was consistent in what he wrote and what he practiced. And we would do well to follow this example in our church. For some in our culture, even in the church, they think they are speaking truth with great boldness, but they lack love. And by very nature, then, that is inconsistent with the way of Jesus, who brought those things forth with complete equality and complete presence, both truth and love, John 1, right? Full of grace and truth, full of love and truth. We ought to desire to meet there in the middle of the balance of those two things. But some in our church are walking in ways that are not pleasing to the Lord, but touting that they are, and saying they are, but not loving through their actions, which is why this is so important, that we walk with integrity before others. We should be saying exactly what people would know we're doing. I, I often, as a case, I've shared this before, I often meet new people and do not tell that I'm a, pa- that I'm a pastor. When we're in the hospital, we are around a lot of nurses and doctors, uh, if they read the charts, they would probably see it somewhere in there. But I don't tell them because I want them to know when they finally hear that I'm a pastor, oh, I could see that. Or, what's your church like? <laughs> and my hope is that I have integrity in my heart enough to go, wow, I could, I could see that. Which is why the last mark is so important for all of us. Seven, a man of God is known by his Humility. We see this in the last section, verses 12 through 18, and I'll have to speed through this for time's sake. Humility is a true mark of godliness, and it's a characteristic Jesus of Jesus, as we know from Philippians 2, probably the great chapter on humility, and only possible if we're consistently repenting of our own pridefulness and attitudes. Sadly, it's not something we're seeing on great display in the church right now. With this, a willingness to get over what we so strongly and passionately are opinioned about and want to gripe about and then lower ourselves for the sake of others, which Philippians 2.3 reminds us, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Satan is doing work in the church in this way and would be wise and unwise in missing this. Many are unwilling to lower themselves, and that has been a problem for over 2,000 years. Well, it's been a problem since the garden, rather, for thousands of years. And many are unwilling to do that, and so I'll use that word unwilling as kind of a play on words to challenge us in a different way in humility of unwillingness. Humility will take unwillingness in this way. And we see this as Paul writes, one in verse 12, unwilling to compare yourself to others. Paul was unwilling to do that. You can see that in the verse there, not willing to compare themselves. This is the worst thing that we can do ever in our relationships with people is to compare ourselves one to another. We do this in several ways, but Paul here wasn't going to play the game of self-elevation and instead measured himself only against the divine standard, which was Jesus you and I are tempted into this all the time to compare ourselves to others' lives. What if, I, what if God would have given me this? What if God would have given me this? Why can't I be like this? I'm better than them. Well, at least I don't sin as much as them. All comparisons, and Paul wasn't going to do that. 
He was unwilling to do that. Secondly, he was unwilling to minister beyond his own limits. We see that in verse 13. People were trying to widen their influence, and Paul was saying, no, I'm not going to exaggerate. You and I know what this is. When we're not humble, we exaggerate. We exaggerate truths. We exaggerate facts. We just exaggerate. I caught a fish this big. You know it was just a little bluegill, but somehow it's a northern pike that's 40 inches. How did you get there? You exaggerated. And Paul says, I'm not going to exaggerate ministry. I'm not going to move beyond our limits here. I'm not going to make them appear better than they are. Paul had no time for doing that. He cared about authentic gospel ministry, and that was where he stayed in humility. And then he was unwilling to take credit for others' labors in verses 14 through 16. He didn't overextend. He didn't boast beyond the limit of labors in others in verse 15. He wanted them to grow, but he was unwilling to take credit for things he didn't do. You and I know about these people. They're the people that you can't stand still who you were in school group projects with that took all the credit and they never showed up for the group. You know them. They drive you nuts for a reason. And Paul says, I'm not going to take credit for things that don't belong to me. In humility, these false teachers were trying to do that. And Paul wanted influence, but he knew it wasn't about him. It was about Christ. And, he, and the work that he put in could bear fruit, but it was always going, not going to be about, look at me, look what I did, I'm Paul, I'm the best. In fact, he knew he wasn't, which is why he was unwilling to seek personal glory in verse 17, which Matt read, which was quoted from Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. His boast was only in the Lord. He knew nothing was on his own. And lastly, he was unwilling to pursue anything other than eternal glory. In verse 18, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. False teachers and glory seekers only care about the here and now, the external, right? The temporal. They want fame and glory now, and Paul only cared what God was doing for eternity. In his writings and doctrine, what God had predestined since the beginning of time to form and fashion, and then what he would do in the hope of glory. As we move through this earth in a temporal way, this is a blip of a vapor of a life. And we care so much about what happens now. And Paul was pointing ahead. His approval was found in the Lord, not in men. Commending himself was of no benefit. The only thing that counted was that he ran a race that God had for him. No one else but him. And at the end of his days, what he wanted to hear, that all of us should want to hear, is well done, good and faithful servant. Humility is a great mark of a godly man or woman. And so by way of closing, I just have one application for all of this. All that a man is of God is marked by these seven things. I have this one application. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful with your criticism of others. Be careful when it comes, how you receive it and respond to it. Be careful with your own pride and motives in ministry and outside of ministry. Although a believer is never outside of ministry, be careful that Jesus is working on your own heart first before you care about others. Be careful that you remain humble before God. Be careful that you walk with integrity. Be careful that you care more about God's people in the church and about his glory more than anything else. And that's how we come to the table this morning. And I pray that we come with that kind of attitude and humility and also that we are a church gathered by one thing in the gospel, Jesus' love and payment for our sin, that we would go forth with the message of that gospel for his glory. Let's pray as the 
servers come up to serve. Father, we pray now that you would settle our hearts to share in this meal, that you would use this time in our lives, even ever so brief, to humble us and to create thankfulness in us, to remind us of the blood that was shed on the cross for our sin, the body broken, and Father, that we would share this in unity. Father, help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Help us to walk as a godly men or women, those in leadership, those not. The same be true that we need to walk all of our days following Jesus. And one day hearing, as we respond in faith, one day hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So Father, help us, I pray. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. All God's people said, amen.